Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Wood Pile. I'm a spun counter guy. Thanks for stopping by. As I record this, the hashtag Stop Asian Hate is trending and seems to be the most recent cause against injustice for many to rally around. Even Vice President Kamala Harris, who during the 2020 election was presented to the American people as a black female, is now emphasizing the Asian portion of her racial background. All of this has one of my friends, Sophia Johnson, irritated and frustrated to no end. And so I've invited her back by the woodpile to let her voice be heard, as the kids these days say. First of all, kind of give folks a little bit of a background of your family and yourself, maybe a brief biography of your life. Well, I am Korean, but I was born in Philadelphia. My parents came, my mom came first in the mid-70s through her sister, and then uh, my dad, somebody introduced my dad. They came through marriage. They got married in 1980, and then moved to Philadelphia, and then we moved out to LA so my dad could start a church uh, in 1988. So I've been in LA since then, um, except for college and in Korea. I lived in Korea for a couple years after college. What area of Korea were they from, your family? So my mom's side is from the southern west, and my dad is from the southern east. And they have very different accents and very different culturally. You know, it's such a small country, even just South Korea itself, right? It's just the size of San Francisco to Los Angeles. If you go north to south, it's about a six, seven-hour drive. They have, like, a few different regions where their accents are different, their foods are different. Like the southern east tend to be a little bit more stronger. The southern west, Tolado, um, Tolanamdo, they're kind of known for their better cooking foods. And but it's kind of like in America where you have the Midwest culture versus the South culture right. versus the West Coast and East. Coast. So you know, it's I think it's common in every co- country you go to. They have those kinds of regional cultural differences. So uh, it probably explains why maybe my parents. The butt of the joke is because my parents are from both different ends of the culture. <laughs> they, they just didn't really get along. <laughs> Led to the eventual demise of their marriage. But uh, my parents are both Christians. You know, my mom wasn't a Christian until she came to the States. But she was already Christian when she met my dad. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up in a, a very Christian household. Um, and we're still Christians. We're all still practicing Christians. And Now, you uh, said your dad came to California to start a church. Was he a pastor? He was already ordained. He finished Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Then he came out here to plan on. So he came out as an associate pastor at one of the churches. It was a bigger church here in L.A., uh, and then he eventually, his ultimate goal was to church plant his own. And so he did, and never was very big. I, you know, it only got as big as 200 mm-hmm. in the mid-90s. Then it went through a really bad phase. My parents split up. We left the church. So he still has his own church, even now as we speak, just in the outskirts of Koreatown. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's small, but he's very independent. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you've kind of explained how you 
became a Christian in some ways because you obviously were raised that way. But was there ever a point where you maybe questioned things and you decided, okay, I'm going to continue to be a Christian? Or did you ever have any doubt or wilderness years, so to speak? I never had a very dramatic turning point. You know, unlike some people's testimony, I've kind of had a slow, gradual. And I, mean, I remember sixth, sixth grade thinking and reflecting, it was Easter and reflecting on Good Friday and like, oh, you really died. And he shed his blood, and I remember being really touched emotionally and being sincere, like, oh, if people didn't believe in Jesus, they could go to hell. Mm-hmm. Or you don't have to have a perfect life because we weren't designed to lead a perfect life. We were designed to lead a a good life in a sense. Of, we didn't have to bear the weight of our flaws. And so in high school, I, I made a decision to recommit, you know, out of my own will, mm-hmm. rather than just kind of being raised as one. I, so I got baptized in my own church, and it was very nice, like a lot of adults. It was like a whole community uh, experience, and I personally chose to go to a Christian college. And when my parents split, it was kind of a big, kind of a fiasco within our Korean community and Korean denomination. But interestingly, I think I was already older enough where I never doubted the faith of, you know, my own faith because of what happened with my church and my parents. Mm-hmm. In a situation like that, a lot of people could easily interpret that and be like, oh, what is the point of Christianity when it's a full of hypocrisy? But for me, it was like, oh, my parents are flawed. This is a sad yeah. scenario, sad case. It never shook my faith. Right. I should say. Um, I would say right now, especially since I had my second kid and more particularly since the pandemic, I feel like I'm kind of going through a dry spell. And it's not me doubting my faith. It's just more like, uh, I don't really feel like it. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not just really, I'm not really being intentional about, I still read Bible stories and we still pray with my kids. And mm-hmm. I'll, I still, like I try to go to church on and off, mm-hmm. um, but I'm, I think I'm just a little being a little lazy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think because everyone's trying to be on Zoom and I just want to go in person somewhere, but I can't seem to find a in-person community, right. especially in my own church. I think a lot of people are kind of going through this, sure. like Christians like me, you know, during this pandemic. Your husband's a believer also. How did you all meet? Oh, we met at church, okay. at my old church, that we decided to finally leave. We left real quick back to your dad was your dad directly trying to minister to other korean americans or which is anybody it was a Korean church. Yeah. It was your kind of classic immigrant church mm-hmm. in America where you, and I think in the 80s and 90s, there was just a big flow of immigrants. And so in our case, Koreans moving to the LA area. Mm-hmm. So it was primarily Korean churches, Korean people. And it was interesting, the older parents, they were all Korean speaking and then their kids were like me where we all went to school and we spoke English. Mm-hmm. But we also spoke Korean because everyone else in the church spoke Korean. So I learned a lot of my Korean through the church. Mm-hmm. And we even had like Sunday Korean classes just to keep the Korean education 
But, you know, my dad was intentional about trying to speak English and having an English service as well. And then we were in the South Central area. We were in like ground zero for LA riots. (laughs) So because we experienced the whole LA riots, my dad, he's a pretty good like social, like he would have probably been a very good politician. Actually, Mm -hmm. he's charismatic and smart and knows how to talk to people. And, but he made it a very intentional move with another uh, black pastor in the area for over a good number of years, we've had services at each other's churches mm-hmm. as a way to kind of build bond. Because during that early 90s, it was a very tough time for Koreans and Blacks um, and their relations. And so, Well, explain thought, to folks, because I'm always surprised that here a lot of folks don't understand that um, that tension between the two groups. Because I think, especially white liberals, tend to think that all minorities are, are buddies. <laughs> <laughs> That's so Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Yeah, in the 90s. And I think this is common in like big urban neighborhoods like New York and Oakland, Bay Area, and LA. I'm going to point out those three, but I'm sure there are other areas like Atlanta, Chicago, Seattle, where you have a lot of Asian immigrant workers working in largely urban neighborhoods, which tend to be non-white like Hispanics or Blacks, right? So in this case in L.A., a lot of Koreans had businesses in the South L.A. area, South Central area. And so, you know, it's it's not uncommon for a lot of Koreans to, like, be defensive or maybe even own a gun. So there was a case where a Korean lady, business lady, maybe a liquor store owner, where she shot a Black young lady for stealing. Um, But I don't think she just shot her at... It was out of self-defense. The black lady was aggravating the owner, maybe put up a little fit. And so and she may have not even been the first-time customer. She could have been a returning customer. So that case sparked an outrage because the Korean lady, either she got let loose, she was set free, or she got a very minimal sentence because it was out of self-defense. So she was a Korean owner of a liquor store, shot a black woman, right? Right, right. So that was like the impetus for the L.A. riots, which was kind of the same time as the Rodney King case. Okay. And so this concept of looting, a lot of the looting just happens because they're in lower income neighborhoods, like the black neighborhood, Mm -hmm. black community. But I think it's kind of um, a symptom, or I don't know what the right word is, you know, when you're outraged and you live in lower community, poor income neighborhoods, your way to express is just to kind of loot and burn and steal and kind of show violence, you know? Right. To somebody who you might perceive is either more successful or having stole everything they have. I mean, it depends on your point of view. Maybe just yeah, so jealousy. Funny, but I'm, I'm clearly biased because I'm Korean and yeah. I know how Koreans work and many like my parents and many people they come here with no english and no money Mm -hmm. and we start at the bottom and it's not like we have experienced racism to every degree from every kind especially blacks because you're in a black neighborhood Mm -hmm. it's it's not uncommon for like many blacks to chink out many of the asians and say a lot of like racial slurs but then and it's funny, like, there's a lot of Koreans that are racist towards or against blacks and have, there's, like, racial slurs for, like, black people in Korean that many people would say, too. Mm-hmm. You know, just because you're in that environment, and it's not necessarily a positive for many 
cases. You know, it's not a positive experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, my dad was, he made a very intentional effort to make peace. And, you know, my dad was, my parents never said to me, or never implied in any ways, like, oh, these black people. It, it was never like that. My dad was always good with everybody in the neighborhood. There was a few homeless people, so he'll always let them in and have food. He, I guess they never implied it as a racial thing to us. I always saw it as a poor neighborhood thing. Like, it's like a class thing. It wasn't necessarily a race thing. And so even to this day, when, like, the very first time I heard about the whole Trayvon Martin and he was shot because he was black or like, I guess growing up, I never saw it as like, oh, you know, blacks are this or Hispanic. It was just like we are in a urban neighborhood and they're poor. That's just kind of how it is. And I should add back to the at least the Rodney King riots or the L.A. riots uh, that yes. we forgot to mention that so many Korean owned businesses were destroyed. And yes. kind of even though they had nothing to do with this. Rodney King or the police or anything like that. So, but and I think that yeah. fact gets obscured by the modern retelling of that whole mess. Yes, and I think a lot of it just has to do with geography. Koreatown is just north of South Central. So in terms of like where to loot, you're just gonna loot in, the, in a neighborhood you're familiar with or close by. There's a lot of garment industry, like mm-hmm. the garment factories are located in like different parts of South Central. So, and they're all Korean owned. So how did you come to your current political beliefs? Now, we should say the reason why me and you are even friends is because of a, a great man named Thomas Sowell that we yes. both admire. And that's mm-hmm. how we started having conversations uh, on the internet. So how did you come to your current beliefs? And did your parents raise you with any kind of political beliefs? They were very political. I mean, I just the only most political thing we ever did was protest in the L.A. riot. I think I was in fifth grade and we were like, no, peace. We want peace. We want justice. And I kind of understood it because like Korean businesses are all being looted. And then on top of that, we weren't being very protected. So, you know, the rooftop Koreans kind of became a thing because somebody's got to defend. Right. And that's kind of how Americans operate. Yeah. There's some you great know? photos of uh, Koreans on the, like you said, the rooftops with weapons, you know, yeah. trying to defend their yeah. businesses. Yeah. They weren't trying to be political. They were very be- they were being primal and instinctive. Like, oh, if people are shooting at us, we're going to have to shoot back. It's just other than like being Republican because of pro-life, mm-hmm. abortion, anti-abortion. My I never my parents weren't really political in our home. Like when I started reading about Robert Kiyosaki and Ron Paul in late high school, early college, that was kind of like my first real political awakening. I guess by default, I was always more conservative or Republican just because my parents are always voted Republican. Mm-hmm. But it, but they never talked about like the social issues or like the gay issues or, you know, the taxes and things like that. I think it really wasn't until 2011 when the whole like Occupy, when that whole movement came. And I remember thinking, uh, well, rich people aren't bad. They're just working hard and they kind of know. And I remember thinking, 
well, what are the one percent people doing? Yeah, yeah. Rather than complain, like, because I, I wasn't rich. I was clearly poor, and I didn't have college debt. So there's, I guess, something inside of me because I remember in 2008, I worked as a high school teacher, and Barack Obama was the president elect, a candidate against John McCain, and I read both of Barack's books. So I was, I guess, I was a moderate by then. I was working at a, a charter inner city school, which is like 70. 60, 70% black, Hispanic, and then the rest were blacks. So, um, and it was an activist school. But I was kind of naive at the time still. I didn't really have formed an opinion by then. I think I was still kind of learning and kind of figuring things out. But I remember 2008, I'm like, I think I would have voted for McCain, actually. Um, but I ended up voting for Obama because there was this kind of, unspoken tension at our school and pressure like if you vote for mccain you'd be racist Mm -hmm. like of course you got to vote for obama he's the change he's the black guy we need like etc so i just remember thinking oh okay well i'm gonna gonna vote for obama so i can Mm -hmm. tell my kids i voted for obama (laughs) well a lot lot of people did that they wanted to be part of a historic event i think a lot of people thought this would be the end of racism finally that's so funny. I never thought of that. I don't think in my mind, I never thought of racism. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we have racism. Because there's always racism as long as humans are breathing. Right. There's <laughs> right. always going to be bias. Let me save that for another thought, the uh-huh. whole race, how my views on racism. Okay, but sure. I guess because I never thought of racism, like, oh, it will. I never thought of that. I always thought it's something human nature. Mm-hmm. It's something kind of innate in all of us. Maybe because of my travels were... Like I've seen in China and other Asian countries, they're very racist towards other race. Mm-hmm. race. Like Chinese can be very racist towards like the Southeast Asians, yeah. same with Koreans. Yeah. Or like blacks, blacks are pretty racist against Koreans. Like in my experience growing up in LA or Hispanics can be, like everybody can be racist in their own ways. Sure. So with that said, I never thought of that. Like Barack Obama. It was, I thought it was just more cool. Like, oh, we really never had a non-white president. Mm-hmm. Okay. But again, it kind of goes back to how we, how you and I got connected. It was really by the guy named Thomas Sowell. And when I first heard him and looked him up, it was the way he wrote, the way he articulated, the context he brought in, in discussing about race and class. It wasn't eye-opening per se, but it was more like, oh, he was kind of saying out loud some of my innate thoughts of how I view the world. He studied a lot of international migration Mm -hmm. um, and different people groups and ethnic groups. And that was kind of how how I always felt, even if I didn't know how to articulate it. And class, class is a big thing. And so reading Robert Kiyosaki led me to reading Ron Paul. Reading a lot of Ron Paul led me um, and Dennis Prager kind of somehow I got somebody mentioned Thomas Sowell and and honestly once I read once I started reading Thomas Sowell I started reading a lot of Walter Williams's articles sure. um, on on the Town Hall website and then even like the Tiger Mom Amy Chua when her book came out in 2011 oh, yeah. right ten or eleven it was like a very racial thing stereotypical Asian. But I never saw it as like an Asian. It was more like cultural. Like that's how like cultural mom, Asian moms 
raise their kids. Sure. I remember when that book came out because the the white left had a hard time dealing with the book because it her method went against the way they raise their kids, their ideology, but they were hesitant to attack an Asian woman. It was funny, like because the whole book was like a funny memoir where she pokes fun at herself half the time. Right. You know, it wasn't like a handbook on how to raise or like or a handbook like, oh, Asian way is the better way. Mm-hmm. But, and, you know, it's funny. Amy Chua reads a lot of Thomas Sowell books because her background is international law, international relation. And Thomas Sowell writes a lot about like different ethnic groups and migration. So I guess their studies kind of overlap. So she's never really, even though she works at Yale Law, she's never been one of the real woke type liberal professors, right. you know? <laughs> Especially with her sec- other book with her husband, The Triple Package, where they write about why different ethnic groups do well, regardless of where they are or what race they are, right? Another thing that we've connected on, another issue is how modern American Christianity, of course, this is probably not only in America, but has been infiltrated by leftism. And that has taken forms in different ways. Now they call it progressive Christianity. It has been called other things like the emerging church, um, maybe even the red letter Christians, that type of thing. But regardless, I think me and you are both of the opinion that it's leading the church astray from uh, at the very least, scripture, or maybe even God himself. You've had some experience in this, uh, you and your husband. So talk about when you first started to see this change or this, I keep calling it infiltration, but I don't know what else to call it. So, you know, I think I was also in it without really realizing it because when I started going to our church in 2008, it was still kind of at a church plant phase, but the church started with the premise that it is an inclusive, diverse church. Now, he didn't go as far as to say equity because it wasn't a buzzword yet back then, mm-hmm. in 2008. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was more of an intentional community of different kinds of people coming together, whether it's race differences or class differences. And so, you know, I liked that idea. And I also, it was close to home. It was in downtown where I lived. So you're smack in the, in the heart of the city. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, that's what I loved about our church. You have all kinds of people that you normally wouldn't meet congregate, hang out normal on a normal basis. So, you know, and I think I met my husband in a context where if I had met my husband in a Korean church, it would have been harder because he's an older man who's been married, who has a kid. And so for someone who's 27 dating a 40, he's a bit older, 42 year old man who's been married with a kid, it's a little harder for a Korean Christian community to accept than uh, a church like my current church, or at that time, church would accept where everybody came as you are. That was like our theme, you come as you are. So even my mom, who was a divorced woman, an Asian one who didn't speak that well English, she actually started going to that church as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at that time, our theme was like, you know, whether you're gay or not, you voted for McCain or Obama, everyone's welcome. Okay, that's great. Sounds like utopia, mm-hmm. you know? Okay. Mm-hmm. But I think this is when I first felt it was the Trayvon Martin case. And we had one of our associate pastors, Delonte, who's a now lead pastor in Washington, D.C., um, Peace Fellowship Church in D.C. 
that's his church, but he was an associate pastor and a student at Fuller at the time. And most of our pastoral staff um, were Fuller Seminary students, most. And I think Fuller in general is more liberal and progressive. And so when the whole Trayvon Martin case came, you know, our associate pastor at the time sang a song called His Shoes or Trayvon's Shoes or something. And he was singing this song right after our worship time. And I distinctly remember my reaction to this. I'm like, why is this guy singing a news story in our church service? Right. He wrote a song about Trayvon. Oh, he wrote it himself. Is, okay. Yes, our associate pastor. Now, this is before the trial actually happened in mm-hmm. 13. This was like 2012 sometime because I remember I wasn't pregnant yet. So I just remember like everyone getting upset and everyone putting up their hoodies and then our church sing a prayer. And then it was like this kind of the first talk of like, oh, you know, this is, he's black, he's being racist. But I just remember feeling like this unsettling in my heart. Like why, you know, why is it just one? Like every type of people have experienced racism. Why, why is it just the blacks, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? But, you know, I, I can understand why, I can see why, you know, they focused on it. So, okay. So then the whole Black Lives Matter started really picking up steam, right? right. Ooh, and then the case in 13 and our, our church. And so I'm like, okay, you know, 13, 2014, 2000, and then 2015 came and then the whole Trump thing, like, really just put me off. I'm like, I never was anti-Trump. I wasn't like pro-Trump. I just saw Trump as Trump. Like, I didn't think he was racist for saying build a wall. I thought he was saying out loud where many of us were thinking, like there's a lot of Hispanics in LA area and they built so many new schools to kind of compensate the population growth. Mm-hmm. You know, they were they're like three high schools within a mile of each other. That is insane if you think about that anywhere else in terms of like population density. The, the average high school, probably three miles apart, four miles apart, you know, on average, even in a decent amount of city or a suburb, you know, a crowded suburb. But to be um, clear, I mean, there was a, there's a distinction between legal immigration and illegal yes. immigration. Yes, yes. So like my parents, okay, so now I have all these different experiences. I guess a lot of it because I, all my teaching experiences have been in inner cities. Mm-hmm. And so their views are a lot more stronger when it comes to like illegal immigration and racism, right? Like those kind of are the two big ones. And I remember thinking in 2012 when I was teaching eighth grade, you know, they were thinking like, oh no, we can't be mean to like immigrants. And I'm like, well, there's a difference between illegal and legal. And I think our church and on my church pastors and my church friends really being expressive on social media was making it really hard for me to go to church in person, even though in person we don't really talk about those things blatantly. But it'll come up like in Bible study or it'll come up in sermons, not like anti-Trump, but like the legacy of racism. You know, or like we need to include everybody, even our illegal brothers and sisters. Like those type of language is starting to really come in. Right. You know, and I even remember when 2012 Barack Obama passed that DACA. 
Yes. Like in June, I think he passed it in June or July, but I remember it being a like, oh, this is a total political move for his reelection in the upcoming November. Because mm-hmm. I would have really won him votes. And I remember reading that policy or that law where like he wouldn't have to deal with it because it he would he would be out of office by then, you know. Right. So whoever is the next president would have to deal with the, the renewal of that DACA remember the DACA policy, the mm-hmm. new laws. So anyway, I, I just all of those kinds of rhetoric were coming into the social media social media played a big part because everyone's really expressing it on their Facebook. My pastor I mean I, I think Delonte was a big influence on this. The pastor who wrote the Trayvon Shoes okay. song. He was a praise team leader. And, you know, personally, he's a great guy, mm-hmm. even to this day. Like, And, and we've had conversations where he, I, he knows I disagree with him on. And can, I'm not very vocal on the social media, but I will always email or respond in messages, my views, my rants. Oh, good. So he knows where I stand on these issues because there was at one point in 2015 where I stopped coming. Mm-hmm. Oh, I stopped coming early 2016. For like good six months and they were like wondering where have you where are you why aren't you coming to church and i'm like dude i can't stand this whole like anti-trumpism seriously like we're supposed to be a church of inclusivity what is this you know? oh yeah good point good point you know so if you're inclusive why are you bashing on people you know as if like your own church members don't have these views and it's so funny because the church treasurer at the time trump was elected the church treasurer voted for trump but the church treasurer would never say out loud he voted for Trump. I remember when Trump was elected, he even said, like, I can't believe who would vote for him, you know? I'm like, your church treasurer who's <laughs> my husband. My husband. Well, okay. You know? And so, obviously, since when he was elected, that just got really annoying. 16, 2017, 18, and then 19, I was just like, I was just like on and off with church started to feel indifferent. I was still pretty active with my Bible study group, and most of them knew where I was on the political spectrum. I think everybody in my Bible study group um, was pretty much a liberal mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and pro. The whole DACA thing really became in the whole border crisis thing, you know, with children's in cages. And, and so I, I remember at one of our quarter theme my leader wanted to talk about immigration and I wrote this long email responding like, how are we going to talk about this without getting heated in our own Bible study session? Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm trying to get away from all this and just try to talk about the Bible and pray. I just shared my views on it right. and I just can't see how it's, it can't not be one-sided. So we ended up not talking about immigration that one quarter. Mm-hmm. Our church Bible study goes by quarter and we meet at home. So every other weekend we're meeting at my house. So. You know, I'm I'm kind of like the racist one inviting everybody to my house. <laughs> you know, who ends up spending the most money on food. <laughs> it's so funny. Honestly, I'm just I'm so tired of it. It's just like I don't care if you're black or white. Like, mm-hmm. just keep your manners and like pitch in. Well, I think that you've kind of swerved into something that, like Martin Luther King, his message it would not survive. I mean, he would probably be canceled because. Especially his yeah. I Have a Dream speech. There's no way that that uh, could be accepted by the Democrats of today or the left of today, however you want to put it, for that colorblind society. Now, we've created a new racism or a new caste system where some groups are more equal than others, to, to borrow from Orwell. Yes. Well, I think in my co- church context, because our church 
we are very big on social justice and, you know, the, the word oppressed. We, we want to be with the marginalized. Mm-hmm. No one will argue against or stand against that. But I think we, I think the mistake our church made was to place the values system on victimhood. And so the most oppressed group in the Olympics of oppressiveness is like blacks, mm-hmm. at least racially, in both race and class, you know, and it's around us in LA where like South Central LA, that's where the lowest, highest crimes, lowest house values, worst schools are located. I think that's why our church focused on that most because they were the most oppressed groups. To go with the Black Lives Matter, um, I, I never really disagreed with the fact that maybe blacks were pulled over by cops more often than other demographics, other groups of people. I think Asian women are one of the worst drivers, but um, they're not. But they're not really committing crimes or stealing cars like right. black men are, right. which statistically is, is the truth. Right. Yeah, right. statistically they just, you know, and so that's why I can see why they tend to be pulled over more often. Mm-hmm. So I can see the grievance and the troublesome with that. And so the justification of Black Lives Matter on that particular issue. But to use Black Lives Matter, like, of course, their lives matter. And so does everyone else's lives matter. But that use that Kafka effect where, like, you use something or say something where you can't argue against it because then it just automatically makes you racist, right? right. right. <laughs> or bigoted. And so our whole church is premised on that. And so I think my husband and I were like, part of it, it was we needed something for our kids, too. It wasn't a very strong kids ministry because it was a city church. There's another big factor why we left, but... I was like, yeah, we finally just decided I wanted to find a church where it was more kid-friendly and more conservative. And so our current church, I think our lead pastor is more conservative. I know that because he saw my Benji Pro post and like, you know, and I know he knows them. As we record this, the the new narrative is that Asians are, in America, are a a group that's being targeted. And now, I should admit, I I have been so immersed in graduate studies. When you first said something to me about it, I wasn't even aware of what was going on. So kind of explain these incidences and how uh, your view of how it's been used to I, I think you ha- I think how you put a, create a new victim class or a new voting block. I can't remember how, exactly how you said it to me, but so right, we're the new victim spotlights. Now. Yeah, so go. Okay, so starting last right, like January, February, March. I don't know the uptick with coronavirus coming from China. So maybe there's more like anti-Asian verbal harassment going on. I wouldn't, or at least the news, maybe media likes to run on these type of racial type cases. You know, so. There may have been an uptick of like maybe or anti-Chinese or anti-Asian with the coronavirus, right? Because it it came from China and a lot of Chinese are in America or Asians. And then the mask wearing kind of made another weird taboo trend going on. And so I will acknowledge it just for that sake. But in terms of the hate crime, however, hate crime is defined, which I think some people are, are including name calling like, oh, you're a chink as a hate crime, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Have you been um, called that before? 
Yeah, not too much here in LA. Definitely when I traveled outside, like New Mexico, Peru, whether it was meant to be derogatory or if it was just meant to be like, oh, there's someone different. See, you know, I think most people would assume that you would be like, yeah, when you went to the Midwest or something, but you're saying Mexico and Peru, (laughs) they called you a chink. That's so funny. Uh Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it really bubbled up in like January or February when like an older Thai man got eventually he was beaten up bad um on a video footage and then he was eventually killed in the hospital he he died in the hospital due to really bad damages injuries and so you know i have a few friends posting like asian hate or stand up for this guy what's so funny is a lot of these cases where a lot of elderly asians are being attacked Mm -hmm. for some reason i never saw that as like oh because they're targeted as asians you know, I was about to ask, because, was there any evidence that they were being targeted because they're Asian? So I think that particular Thai, this grandfather who was like 80 some years old Thai, that there was a GoFundMe page started by his daughter or granddaughter or something. And maybe there were some racial exchanges happening, or maybe the daughter or the granddaughter who started the GoFundMe was interpreting the case as a racial thing because okay. he was Asian. Okay, but the perpetrator was a young black man. So this kind of kind of went kind of on the spotlight. It wasn't it didn't become viral unlike the Atlanta shooting. Mm-hmm. But what's so funny is when I saw that I'm like, I'm not surprised. This guy's in Oakland or mm-hmm. Bay Area. And it's very common for like Asian older elderly immigrants to live in like largely urban communities and low income communities. Bay Area, LA, New York. You know, because my parent my grandparents were this exact same thing. They grew up in there were immigrants, and he's been robbed a couple times, like in the downtown area. That's just what happens when you're in a ghetto neighborhood. Right. And so, but they're kind of interpreting it as an Asian hate crime. And so, okay, there's a few of these instances caught on camera. That sucks, okay? These Asian people are being killed or insulted. I don't know if it's necessarily because they're Asian. I think because they're just in ghetto or neighborhoods, and they're vulnerable. And so for like any young, or I wouldn't say young, but like let's say a black or a Hispanic man wanting to attack an Asian, they might say, oh, you little gook, or you chink, you know, you're your chinky eyes, and they're name calling them. But I don't think, I think they're saying that because that's something to point out. Mm-hmm. If that person, if the victim was really fat, you would just say, oh, you, you fat ass. Right. Or if that victim was, had a really weird hair or, or a weird eye or like, you know, really bad crooked teeth, yeah. then they would say something about the teeth. So it's just your name calling out a description about that person. Sure. And so in this case, it, they just happened to be Asian. And then the Atlanta shooting happened. And I didn't even know about it. But I was wondering, what are, what is all this Asian hashtag, stop Asian hate crime, whatever. Um, so then I learned about the Atlanta shooting. It was a young white man who shot three different spas and massage parlors, and most of the victims were Asian. I don't know if that was intentional or not. But once again, and I think a lot of it had to do with because he's a white young man with a gun. Right. And this is, you know, it's sad because it's, he didn't just shoot somebody on the street. He went out on this killing sprawl, which is very high profile, very uh, tragic. And so... It's easy to run with a case like what, this, and then now did, wasn't he a right. frequenter of these places? So apparently, he might have frequented. Maybe he had like an Asian fetish, whatever. Uh, but he just happened to be a white guy. So obviously, this is white supremacist, mm-hmm. racist guy. You know, shooting Asian 
women. Mm -hmm. That's like the narrative. And so obviously for me, I'm very irked and I'm mad because number one, well, I was sad because I frequent Korean spas very often. So I can see how maybe people misunderstood that as like some kind of maybe sexualized fetish demeanor or thing going on taboo but I, I think i was just mad like people weren't mourning for the deaths of these people regardless of their race regardless of motive like someone to go out and kill eight people like that is very extreme and you'd have to mentally be off to pull off anything like that sure you know what i mean yeah regardless of what your motives were like i didn't really care what the motive was i'm like oh this guy killed eight people that's horrible just like the boulder case a week later mm-hmm. who happens to be some maybe muslim or syrian guy so this whole asian hate crime thing you, you get this high profile case and then you make a blanket statement like oh there's asian hate maybe white supremacy could be one case but there's a statistic going out that was really going viral i don't know if you saw it with like 3800 hate crimes reported in the aapi organization you know, so that's like the floating statistic going around. Well, only 11% of those are actual physical assaults, okay? Mm-hmm. And all of those physical, I wouldn't say all, but most of those physical assaults are in inner city communities perpetrated by, I hate to say it, black men. Yeah. Maybe some white or Hispanic, maybe other Koreans, I don't know. But this is a very common phenomenon in the ghettos. Like, just like ghetto neighborhoods, you're going to have physical assault of robberies and whatever. Yeah. That's a very important fact that people are leaving out in the narrative of this racial narrative today as Asians being victims. And I'm like thinking, oh my God, here we go again from last summer, right? Here we go again. It's BLM Asian style. I, I remember saying that out loud to my husband. And it's funny, he, he's an avid NPR listener, so he does have a slightly different view. And also his personal experience mm-hmm. and his social media feed is probably a little different than mine because I tend to have more Asians on my, I just have more Asians that are educated, Mm -hmm. coastal, they're the coastal elites, right? So most of my Asian friends are liberals. So I'm just seeing all my news feed a lot, both Instagram and Facebook. It's kind of warped. It's kind of evolved from Asian hate to like now my lived experience is also being, you know, labeled as racist. Like, oh, people made fun of me or people made fun of my name. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, that is also included into the narrative, into the hate crime, into this like anti-racist, you know, yeah. lived experience we all need to. And I remember sharing with my husband, like, oh, my God, people were talking about how they were chinked out. Like, who who cares? We've all been chinked out or fatted out or nerded out or <laughs> we've all been bullied in one way or another for right. whatever reason. Right? right. You know, move on. Like, and my husband said it, which was very true but he just somehow said it which kind of like put a light bulb on like he says everyone needs to be a victim these days it's true (laughs) there's a value system of victimhood yes that is um really having a social high social currency right now so asians are the new victims right we'll see what it is next year yes (laughs) we'll see what's in fashion next year of, of victimhood i think i'm just mad you know, last year was a BLM, and so I couldn't personally relate because I wasn't black myself. But now I'm. Now it's like being patronized, you know, with patronizing, you know, as an Asian myself, seeing it now mm-hmm. in a different context as an Asian person. It's like very annoying, and I can see why a lot of conservative blacks and Hispanics are really 
upset because they're always patronized. You know what I mean? Right. right? It's a new, it's a different well, form of racism, really. Yeah. yeah. Like you yeah. poor little Asian person, or you poor little black person. Yeah, like I mean, my friend lives in Atlanta. She's a white liberal, mm-hmm. good Christian, but she she put a post up at her initial post on March 17 was like, I checked in with my Asian friends here in LA and Atlanta, and I am praying with you guys. Oh, <laughs> I'm starting, you know, something in solidarity, something like that kind that's of. Virtu- but that even I mean, I don't uh, mean to bust on your friend, but that's that's virtual s- signaling. You know, I'm, I'm. She is total virtue signaling. <laughs> I'm like, dude. I mean, she's a girl, but I just say dude. Yeah, but. no, okay. <laughs> Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. What's something sure, of course. that about Korean culture or uh, something awesome that you wish more people knew about that you think could um, people would enjoy or be edified by? I would say just right now, I feel very proud to be Korean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Honestly, uh-huh. I think in terms of pop culture, uh-huh. like per- Korea has really made their their mark on the map, international map. Uh, I know within the Asian world, like K-pop and Korean dramas were already big, you know, in the Asian world, like Japanese and Mm -hmm. Filipinos and Malaysians and some of my Thai friends, like a lot of them will watch Korean dramas. Right. But I think when like that Gangnam Style song came out in 2012 on YouTube, it was like the first video to hit the 1 billion views mark. And then BTS and then a lot of the Korean dramas like Parasite. Right and now Minari, mm-hmm. so I I just kind of feel proud in the sense like oh and being proud as a Korean because they are making their cultural mark on the map. But I lived in Korea from 2006 to 2008, and when I moved back to LA, I felt like I was kind of going backwards in time because in Korea the internet is just amazing, technology is amazing. Their infrastructure, there's transportation. My goodness, this transportation. I mean, you know, having lived, I don't know where you lived in China, but you know, like Beijing, they have a great subway system. Right. Um, in Shanghai and Hong Kong. And so going back to, you know, moving back to America, I felt like I was kind of regressing right. <laughs> a little bit. Like the, the, the cell phone signals don't work in the subways, but they do in Korea everywhere. You can climb up to the top of the mountain and your signal still works. You know? <laughs> um, so I just, I feel proud. I think not so much Korean, but like I would say Chinese and Japanese. Confucius plays a big role mm-hmm. more than Buddhism because his teachings is probably why Eastern Asians, Chinese, Koreans, Japanese, generally do well in their academics Mm -hmm. in their family values yeah he has a formula and we've talked both the pros and cons of confucius on these podcasts but he does have a formula for success it's it reminds me of i think was it's either ben shapiro or or charlie kirk one of those guys who has this like if you do three things or i can't remember what the number is but Right, the, right. Like the, graduate high school, yes. Get a job and have a kid after you marry. Right, like that. right. That you will be, you won't be in poverty or something like that. And it's statistically true. And so Confucius, in a similar way, has this kind of structure that if you follow it, you, your life won't be too bad. It's just so funny how I see so many people groups being a, they talk about oppressed, the legacy of slavery, even though Thomas Sowell and many of these economists and intellects have proven 
black families were doing much better before the 60s. Um, they were actually more intact than white yeah, families were. Yeah, they had more nuclear families. Yeah. I think I'm just speechless of how warped the narrative is mm-hmm. and inconsistent because when I think of a lot of these immig- immigrant groups that have come, like Nigerians or Jamaicans or mm-hmm. Koreans or Chinese, they come to America, a lot of us don't come with money or with English or with education. And most of us start with nothing and we've totally been chinked out or like blacked out or whatever the word is for your ethnic group. And yet we kind of just shut up and we just work and save and do our thing. Like kind of like you say, like you said about Trump, like he's rich. I want to know what he did right. You know, but I think the, our current culture is what did he do wrong? You know, yeah, who did yeah. he steal from? And so I think maybe uh, the, the, we're asking the wrong questions when mm-hmm. we look at ethnic groups that are uh, successful. I will say this. Um, growing up in a Korean church in the States, it's very common, you know, because the Korean churches, they place so much emphasis on education. Even though our church was small, like the parents and the people, everyone was very intentional about like the Sunday school kids the youth group and the elementary kids and a college group. Like they were very intentional and they made sure like they poured money into doing summer camps or doing activities or having a little Sunday school or making schedule. So there was a high prioritization of Sunday school and a youth group. And so the church that I met my husband in 2008, um, you know, it's a city church and it never really built a strong uh, Sunday school program for the kids. And I always thought, I think part of it um, is because they never really prioritized it, you know, like other family churches. So even though it was a small church, you know, like Asian parents still, they'll scrimp on other things, but they'll pay for like tutors, right? So the same thing in the insurance context, you know, they'll put the money in where it'll really matter, even if they can't really afford it. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a value system that I'm grateful that I can learn from and, um, that I wanted to bestow on my kids. If you have an interest in Korean culture and history, might I recommend In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 213, where author Lisa C. talks about her novel, The Island of Sea Women, which tells the story of the Jeju peoples of Korea. Also, back on episode 41, we talked with Sister Sunghae Kim of South Korea about the connections between Taoism and Christianity. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and a Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.